Welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to at davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 34th episode of this podcast, recorded on Friday, December 8th. Thanks to this podcast sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. In light of the holiday season, a time to both express thanks for our blessings and to give back to our communities, I've been focused on public interest and pro bono work. For my last episode, my guest was a leader in the public interest world, Twyla Carter of the Legal Aid Society. For today's episode, my guest is a leader in the pro bono community, Jacqueline Haberfeld of Kirkland & Ellis. Jackie is the firm-wide program director for pro bono at Kirkland & Ellis, the world's largest law firm in terms of revenue and one of the largest in terms of headcount, with more than 3,500 lawyers worldwide. She is responsible for the overall pro bono program at Kirkland, charged with monitoring local and national developments with an eye towards creating and running scalable volunteer legal services programs in response to evolving needs. Jackie has received numerous awards and accolades for her work. She has been recognized by Crane's New York Business as one of the most notable women in law, by City and State as one of the 100 most responsible New Yorkers in the legal industry, and by the City Bar Justice Center for Outstanding Pro Bono Service, among other honors. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Jacqueline Haberfeld. Jackie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your childhood, your upbringing. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and my mom was a market research analyst and my father was a doctor. So any lawyers in the family? None at all at that time. And were there any early hints that you might end up in the law? I would say no. My father wanted me to be a doctor, which means that you could be guaranteed that that's not what I would wind up being. <laughs> and I was not interested in the law as a child. I was interested in the arts and art and music and things like that. So what led you to go to law school then? Well, I went to college and I was an art major and a business minor. And when you go to college to be an art major, what you graduate with is a degree that puts you basically squarely into, I don't know, advertising or graphic design or something like that. So I had spent four years selling toys, terrible toys to children. And I sort of thought that this was not something I wanted to be doing for the rest of my career and did a very objective analysis of my strengths and weaknesses and settled on law school as something that would be consistent with my skills. But when you went to law school, did you have an idea of what type of law you wanted to do afterwards? I thought logically art law or something related to the arts would be something that I would wind up in. And I did, in fact, have a couple of arts related cases that were fascinating, including the Sotheby's antitrust matters when I was at Wagachal as a litigator. But my career did trend more towards criminal defense. And that's actually where you got your start, right? Even before Wild. Yes, I worked at LaRosa Mitchell and Ross. At that time, Jimmy LaRosa was the dean of the criminal bar. And that was really an extraordinary experience to be able to do that kind of work. I mean, really so much fun and very interesting. And then what led you to jump from that? It was a boutique, I think, fair to say, right? Was that a fair yes. characterization? What led you to jump from that to wild? People usually do it the other way around, I guess. 
Yeah, I think that I was ready for a different environment. I was ready for very similar to advertising in a way. I thought criminal defense was sort of a something that I enjoyed doing when I was younger, but not something that I wanted to do as I evolved as a lawyer. And I was very, very lucky that I met and was hired by some folks at Walgotchel and was able to be there for a good long time doing general commercial litigation and handling any one of their small criminal matters that came in while I was there. Oh, okay. Good, good. Yeah. So you did get to keep a foot in that world. And then after that, where did you go after a while? When I was at Weill, there was no such thing as professionalized pro bono. It was really more the kind of thing that was being handled by lawyers at the firm who really cared about pro bono, but there was no professional role of pro bono counsel. I left Weill and took a couple of years off. I had a a baby. I invented a baby product. I manufactured it. I sold it. I did a couple of sort of entrepreneurial (laughs) things. And when I came back into law, and this is 20 years ago now, the concept of a pro bono counsel had been created. And so I was able to step into that role. I had been doing it at Weill as the only associate who was a member of the pro bono committee at Weill. And so I had been doing it sort of as a side hustle (laughs) to my main job. I ran the 9-11 response for a while, I mean, along with others. But I had really been very involved in pro bono at Weill. But now I had the opportunity to do it professionally. And I started doing that back in 2006. And where uh, do you take your first pro bono counsel role? Well, I managed pro bono at a firm, at a large firm. It was part of my job. But I really became deeply immersed in pro bono when I worked for the Honorable Fern Fisher, then the deputy chief administrative judge. And I became special counsel where I was one of a few people involved in managing the access to justice program for the courts. And I was in charge of court-sponsored pro bono legal services for the city of New York and Nassau and Suffolk County, along with a couple of other people. And that was a great experience. And then I went right from there to Kirkland. And so you arrived in Kirkland a little more than a decade ago? Yes. I've been in Kirkland 11 years, almost 11 years. Oh, wow. Well, congrats. (laughs) So when you joined Kirkland, was there already an existing group of pro bono counsel or were you sort of initiating the role? I was number two. I was not initiating the role. I came to Kirkland with experience doing pro bono, both at the courts and at a prior firm and at Walgotchel and frankly, throughout my career. But there was only one person who was managing the whole program for the entire firm at Kirkland. So I was number two. And we were in the two largest offices, Chicago and New York. And I helped to build this program into what it is today. Now we are, in January, we will be 10 people. Oh, great. Wow. And when did you take the role leading the program? That happened about, I want to say, three Years ago. Yeah. January 2021. Okay. So three years ago in January, which is very soon, just around the corner. So big picture, what would you say is the mission statement or the philosophy of Kirkland's pro bono program? So this has evolved over time. And right now, I really love our mission. We basically, our role at the firm and the mission of the program is to enable our lawyers to contribute to the pro bono legal needs of the communities in which we have offices. And the community can be either the micro community, the city, or it can be the macro community, the country, the world, whatever the needs are, and to respond to the emerging needs. 
So that is sort of our mission to better our community through pro bono. And I am curious, Kirkland is a global firm. Is there also pro bono in the overseas or foreign offices? Yes, we have 19 offices right now. We have pro bono in every office. Everywhere we have lawyers, we have pro bono. That's great. Now, I guess speaking domestically, at least, what is the expectation or requirement for Kirkland lawyers in terms of pro bono work? Or is there an expectation or requirement? Well, the hope is that every lawyer will do pro bono every year. It's not mandatory at Kirkland. Some firms do have mandatory pro bono. We don't believe in it. We want people to do the work that they want to do. But we also think that every lawyer has an obligation, an ethical professional obligation to give back. I mean, obviously, if you're at Kirkland, you are a person to whom much has been given and who has earned a lot. And it's really an opportunity to give some of that back. We hope everyone will do it. Not mandatory, though. I think that's great. That makes sense. And what is the firm's policy in terms of billing credit or hours when it comes to pro bono work? Because this is sometimes an issue that comes up. Right. And there are a lot of different ways that firms handle that. Kirkland's policies are the gold standard. And we're certainly not alone in that. Every lawyer gets credit for every hour of pro bono that they do, hour for hour, with no cap. Meaning... Oh, interesting. There is no limit to the amount of pro bono that you can do. So there's no cap officially or formally, but as a practical matter, is there a limit in the sense that I've heard at other firms, not Kirkland, but other firms where associates are told in annual reviews, hey, you're doing a great job, but you know, you do a little too much pro bono work. Right. That really is only going to happen if we find that someone has been cobbling together a thousand hours of pro bono out of very low impact work. I mean, we have a partner who billed a thousand hours to pro bono a few years ago on a major impact litigation. No one's going to say a word about that. We are proud mm-hmm. of that work. It really comes down to impact. Okay. We look at impact. And it sounds like if the work is important and the firm believes in it, then go to your 1,000 hours if the work is high impact and important. Absolutely. Absolutely. So turning to your work during the decade plus that you've been at Kirkland, is there a particular project that you are most proud of or that you have a particular attachment to? Maybe this is like asking a parent to pick their favorite child, but (laughs) is there one that you would highlight as particularly interesting or a model for other programs or just something you have an emotional attachment or a sentimental attachment to? That is a hard question. There have been so many things that I've really been proud of that we've done in the time that I've been here. But I think I'm most proud of the Credible Fear interview project I did, which started in 2018 with Lawyers for Good Government. I think based on our tech stylings, my very dear friend and wonderful pro bono partner, Steve Schulman from Aiken Gump, gave a call and asked me whether I thought we could put together a program to help two to 300 immigrants who were detained at the Carnes Detention Center in San Antonio, Texas, whether we could help put together a program to help them with their credible fear interviews or their reasonable fear interviews, which is the first step of the asylum process. And it was going to be challenging because it was remote. We couldn't send hundreds of lawyers down to San Antonio. And this was 2018. People were not doing things remotely then the way they are now. There was not a whole infrastructure in place. And I worked with Tracy Fight Love of Lawyers for Good Government. And we learned through that program. Well, I mean, the punchline is it wasn't two to 300 immigrants. It turned out to be really almost 3,000 immigrants that we wound up helping during the pendency of that project, which went for almost two years. 
It was pretty crazy. I mean, it had never been done before. No one had ever done a project like that. And we learned that we could develop scalable and impactful pro bono projects that we could manage remotely and that we could manage risk, which is very important to the firms. Yes, yes. We could manage the substantive work, also very important to the clients, and that we could manage staffing using technology to do all three. I mean, it was a huge collaborative project involving hundreds of attorneys from dozens of firms. There were times when I was in my office at six o'clock in the morning to advise a partner from another firm about how to conduct a reasonable fear interview that he was going to be sitting in on at eight o'clock in the morning in San Antonio. Wow. But that kind of collaboration, you don't see that that often in terms of the large firms working together. And this really was that. That's great. Yeah. So Kirkland started it and then you looped in other peer firms, I guess? Kirkland and Lawyers for Good Government started it. I immediately called Tracy, who is a tech genius, and she's not just a tech genius. She's a Harvard-educated lawyer with a lot of really great ideas about how to run projects and manage projects. And she and I worked together to put the project together. We had expertise on the ground, a legal service organization that could help us train. We had other folks training with us. This is not the kind of thing that Kirkland ever would even try to do alone, even mm-hmm. when it was two to 300 immigrants. Sure. And we reached out to other firms and said, we have this opportunity. And at that time, everyone really cared a lot about this issue. Yes. You know, that immigrants coming across the southern border were a very hot topic at that time, both in terms of how to manage their civil and human rights and, you know, politically very challenging. Sure. And firms wanted to do something that was really just helpful. Okay. And here lawyers had an opportunity to give direct services to people who really without them would not have had Lawyers, if you're interested, I can tell you one or two very brief stories about the kinds of things we saw. Yeah, sure. I would love to hear sort of a war story from the program. So a story that came from that project is I had an attorney who was working on one of these hearings come running into my office and say, can you come in and listen to this? And I came in and I listened to the hearing and the two of us realized that the client did not speak the same language as the interpreter. Oh. And the asylum officer did not realize it, but the lawyer did realize that the interpreter was speaking Spanish and the client, the immigrant, was speaking something other than Spanish. And it was one of these indigenous languages where it is extremely challenging to find translators in Imam, Quiche, Isil. These are hard languages to find translators who also speak English. And the government has many, but not enough. And we were able to say to the asylum officer, please ask him what day it is. And when we asked him what day it was, he said something like, my brother. Oh. And we stopped the interview until we could get him a translator in the language that he actually spoke. Interestingly, the translator had not identified that he was giving nonsensical answers. But that is the kind of impact that the presence of a lawyer can Mm -hmm. have where someone was being interviewed in a language he didn't speak. Yeah, exactly. And that's not even the substantive law issues, right? I mean, of course, there were also some substantive law issues that we could address in those interviews. So we really felt that it was an impactful project and people had the ability to make a real difference for immigrants 
I remember that it was the family separation time. Yes, yes. These were men and their sons who had been separated. Some of the fathers, all they did the entire time was ask where their children were. Wow. Oh, my goodness. And so having a lawyer there to say, we know that that's what you're looking for, but please, please just try to answer the questions that you're being asked and to try to guide them. It was very important work. Wow. No, that's great. How many firms roughly besides Kirkland do you think were involved ultimately or over the pendency of the project? Oh, geez. I think there were probably around 60 firms that trained lawyers for that project. And there were hundreds and hundreds of lawyers. And we ran the whole project from our little corner of Kirkland with me and my assistant, Amy Heaton, who keeps everything running on time, and a paralegal, Amanda Sorella, who was extraordinary. And between us, we staffed every single one of those almost 3,000 interviews. This is very logistically complicated, but impressive. Very. And honestly, without the tech stylings of Tracy Fight Love, it would never have happened. It was really amazing. But we learned we could do it. And we have since then applied that model in many different configurations to other kinds of work. An interesting thing that happened is that we applied that model. I don't know if you recall, there was that gigantic workplace raid on a poultry processing plant in Mississippi a number of years ago, the -hmm. largest workplace raid in American history. And we took 50 of those detainees and agreed to do their full representation bond hearings remotely. And it turned into an in-person project, which was really complicated. So, you know, there's all kinds of logistics happening with that, too, where some firms, we told them, we promised them that it was going to be remote. And the judge said, absolutely not. You're going to have to appear. Oh, wow. Which is very unusual. And as it's my understanding that she ultimately was sued over it. But for that time, we had to appear. Okay. And so we did a lot of scrambling and Kirkland appeared for a number of other firms that were not able to send their lawyers up to Batavia, New York, to have immigration hearings in front of a judge. It was fascinating. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you've wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests. I am curious. A lot has happened since 2018. We had the pandemic. We had lawyers working remotely. Has the rise of Zoom and Teams and similar tools been incorporated into pro bono work? I'm guessing it has in some ways. Does it allow you to do more or make things easier? It makes some things easier and some things more difficult. But I think on the whole, it has made things a lot easier. I think that we as people of privilege don't really contemplate how difficult it is for some people to get to a place where they have to meet with a lawyer and, you know, take time and get childcare and transportation and all of that. I think that it has enabled us to do virtual clinics. It has enabled, you know, where we can provide services on the phone or on Zoom. It has enabled us to do all kinds of work that we couldn't do before in places where there are no lawyers, you know, outside Mm. urban areas, there are no lawyers. I think that it has, in certain respects, adversely affected people like survivors of domestic violence who may still be in situations in which they can't really talk on the phone. I think that Zoom has really not helped. You know, there are certain groups of people who do not like Zoom. Sure. Yes. Veterans, for example, don't like Zoom. There are certain groups where people want to sit face to face with lawyers. 
Okay. And that may be a little bit more difficult now because we do a lot of remote clinics. But I do think that it has helped us way more than it's hurt us. Okay. Definitely. Good. So we're almost to the end of the year. People can think about what they want to do in the new year, New Year's resolutions, like do more pro bono. What are some of the priorities of Kirkland's program for 2024? Are there particular issues that you want to focus on or particular things you want to do with the program itself? What are you thinking about with the coming year? We're focusing, as we do every year, on impact and, you know, really looking at the places where we have offices and trying to see how we can be helpful in projects and needs. So if we see a project that we need to join, we'll join it. And if we see a place where there's a need and there's no project, we'll try to create one. And, you know, as I may have said, we're a very big tent and we always want to include other firms where we can, where there's a lot of people with needs and we hope to try to include others. I think that continues for 2024. It's always been our policy and I think it'll continue to be. And what about your work with nonprofits or legal aid type organizations. You mentioned other firms, but I assume you're also working with all of these other types of players in the pro bono public interest world. Oh, they're essential. We could not do what we do without them. They have the expertise that we don't have. For example, we have an immigration expert, Ashley Hubner is extraordinary working at Kirkland, but we don't have an immigration practice at Kirkland. Our only immigration practice is our pro bono practice. We don't have a matrimonial practice, a family court practice, a lot of the practices that we have only in our pro bono practice. And we rely very heavily on our legal service organization and nonprofit partners for mentorship and training and outreach and all of that stuff. We could not function without them. No firm could. So Kirkland, in many ways, is providing the lawyers and the person power, but it sounds like in many cases you're getting training and guidance from these organizations because your lawyers might be M&A lawyers, or they might be IP litigators, or they might be any number of things, but they may not necessarily have expertise in, as you were saying, family law or immigration law. Exactly. Two of our best asylum folks are IP litigators. They became experts through pro bono work. Until they became experts, they needed guidance from organizations that did this work. And so we rely very heavily on them and we're grateful for their willingness to work with us. Mm -hmm. Now, this is probably a different issue, but I'm just curious, does the firm financially support any of these organizations? Is there a Kirkland Foundation or anything like that makes monetary donations or is it really more person power? And don't get me wrong, the person power given lawyer billing rates these days is very valuable. Yeah, the firm does support every organization with which we do pro bono work. And the reason for that is not because it's pay to play. We're not paying for the pro bono work, but we recognize and I hope that all firms recognize that it costs these organizations money to work with us. It costs them money to do the outreach, the mentorship, the training, all of that. We have a lot of questions. We're needy. We ask a a lot of questions at the beginning until we learn how to do something. And it costs them money to work with us. And I mean, not every firm has the tremendous resources of Kirkland or the capacity to donate and be philanthropic in this way. But if a firm does have the ability to support the organizations that help them to do the pro bono work, that is really essential for the survival of these organizations. So 
Over the years, controversies have occasionally arisen over law firms' pro bono work. A number of years ago, there was all the controversy over representing Guantanamo detainees, for instance. I suspect that there are probably controversies going on today relating to the Israel-Palestine conflict. So I guess this is just a very general question. I don't want to ask about any specific representations, but to what extent do political or reputational concerns come into play when deciding what pro bono projects Kirkland will get involved with? Well, I think that every firm differs on this. Every firm has sensitivities to these things, obviously, but the pro bono programs are the philanthropic service wing of very much for-profit businesses, right? And so every firm is going to have different sensitivities and different approaches to dealing with those questions. And there's the whole spectrum of responses, as you can see in the legal press, in terms of how firms respond to those sensitivities. Is there a committee of partners at Kirkland that you work with in your capacity as director of the program that vets issues? Obviously, you have to do conflicts checks too, because pro bono clients are clients just like paying clients. But is there some organization that I guess I, I guess this is a broader question. If Kirkland agrees to pick up a pro bono client, who has to sign off on that? I assume you do, but who else? Right, I do. But then also there is a committee. Pro bono cases are treated exactly the same as paying client cases. So when the case comes in, a description of it is circulated through, as you said, conflicts, looking for conflict with firm clients. And then it goes to a committee of partners who review the matters that come in. And then there is a list of every new matter that goes around to all partners of Kirkland and they can opine on their thoughts about it. You know, generally speaking, we don't have everybody checking in on every matter, but they do have the opportunity to see the work that we're doing before we commit. So you have what I think a lot of lawyers would regard as a dream job. You have the opportunity to do this great, amazing pro bono work with big law resources on a big law salary. So what advice would you give to lawyers who aspire to a job like yours at Kirkland or a similar firm? I think that everyone who does my job thinks we have the best job. <laughs> in. The, you know, there are only a couple of hundred of us. There are not that yes. many of us, but we all think we have the best job that a lawyer can possibly have to be able to direct the resources of firms like ours to public service. And we do get these questions all the time from lawyers at our firms and at other firms. How do I get these jobs? Yeah. And the only answer we can give is to stay involved in pro bono, okay. to develop an understanding of the work that you're doing, the substantive work that you're doing, and the way that pro bono works. And I would add to that now that while those of us who are older and have been doing this for decades tended to be more sort of generalists, I think that now there is a trend towards people with specific expertise, immigration oh, lawyers, transactional lawyers, lawyers with a focus on nonprofit governance, you know, people with areas of specialty, which makes you even more sort of desirable as a pro bono counsel. Having said that, the approach to this job comes from people who have done pro bono in the past and who have been very involved and they come up through their own firms. We have hired people from nonprofits where they have come over to do this work with the private bar that they were doing similarly at a nonprofit. And we have had people come in as staff members this is going to be different at every firm. And the approach that you're going to take is going to be different at every firm. But if you are a lawyer who wants to be pro bono counsel somewhere, 
do a lot of pro bono, make an effort to understand pro bono and develop an area of expertise that you think would be useful in the context of a pro bono program of your firm. Okay. So on that note, with the new year almost here, I suspect or I hope that a lot of lawyers are resolving to do more pro bono work in the new year. Is there any advice you could give to lawyers who want to be more involved with pro bono work at their firms? What are some of the things that prevent lawyers from being more involved and what can they do to address those obstacles? I think that anyone who's listening to this podcast who's at a major firm probably has a pro bono counsel at their firm who they can call and ask for pro bono work. So I think the people that are at the larger firms for the most part have a resource. People who are at midsize and small firms can call their local bar association. There will almost always be an opportunity to do some work through a local bar association. And there is also an online resource called lawhelp.org or probono.net, where you can go and see the kinds of work that are available in your community. Of course, I would recommend trying to find out what the policies are at your firm about doing oh, sure. pro bono work. <laughs> yes. It may be a little bit more challenging at the smaller and mid-sized firms, but you still do have access to doing pro bono. The roadblocks are time. Time seems to be the biggest problem of people feeling concerned about whether they can fit it in. And there are all different kinds of matters. There's full representation, which is the most time consuming. And then there are research projects that you can do at your convenience. And there are clinics where you go, you serve and you leave and you have a discrete amount of time committed to it. So there's really all kinds of ways to address issues of concerns about time. Mm -hmm, And concerns mm -hmm. about expertise can be met by really signing up for programs where there is robust training and mentorship. And so even if you are a M&A lawyer and you want to do a veterans benefits application, you can find programs where the training for that is available and you'll be supported and you can do really any work that you want to do. That's great. Those are great pieces of advice because I agree with you. I suspect that the issues are one time for very busy big law lawyers and two expertise. Because look, I'll be honest, if I'm an M&A lawyer and there's some person who could get to stay in the United States or not because of me, I'd be kind of nervous. So I would want that training. And it's great that there are those resources. But let me ask you, so you're very active in the broader pro bono community beyond Kirkland. You talked, of course, about working with other firms, but I know you're also involved with various organizations. If there is one reform or change you could make industry-wide in terms of pro bono beyond Kirkland, all of, you know, large, small, mid-sized firms with pro bono practices. It could be adding a new requirement. It could be getting rid of a requirement. It could be spreading a certain best practice. What would that be? I would like to differently assess the way that we assess the quality and value of the work that we're doing. Right now, the firms assess our work based on hours per lawyer and percentage participation at our firms, what percentage of our firm's lawyers do pro bono based on our headcount. Yes. And I think that it's objective in certain respects because there are metrics that are easily tracked, but it is not a really good assessment of the value and impact of the work that we're doing. And I'm working on a project with Advocates for International Development, and that we're sort of testing out around here to try to figure out whether we can evaluate the work that we're doing based on the sustainable development goals of the United Nations to look at the work that we're doing and see how we're doing in terms of meeting those goals and addressing those goals in the hopes of someday being able to share this with other firms to help the 
legal industry assess the work that we do and the impact that we have based on something other than hours and participation. That makes perfect sense. I think that we live in a world of data and metrics, and I get that. Uh, You need something to look at, but I'll be really interested in hearing uh, what you come up with. Maybe uh, you'll have to come back and let us know after you've figured it all out. (laughs) That would be great. I love that. (laughs) So I always close with a little lightning round of four final questions, and they are standard for all guests. So my first question is, What do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law in the trenches serving clients, or it can be law as this abstract system. This is going to sound like a little bit of a crazy answer for somebody who's trained as a big firm litigator. But the thing I dislike most about law is the adversarial nature of it. I think that Hmm. we accomplish so much more when we are either collaborative or when we work on disputes even and difficulties in a way in which we are sort of mediating the dispute rather than trying to come up with a winner and a loser. I think that we could save a lot of time and a lot of money. I think that we could save a lot of drama and heartache if we could focus more on solving problem rather than on being adversarial about it. That's very interesting. And I have to say, it's a surprising answer in the sense that I think when a lot of people think of pro bono work, I think they do think of defeating somebody, defeating the government, you know, who's engaged in abuses or, you know, winning in a contested domestic matter or winning in a voting rights matter or whatever it is. I think people usually think of it in terms of courtroom wins. So I find it very interesting. I think that's a very profound insight. I mean, we're talking earlier about the CFI project, right? At that time, everyone was being very critical of the asylum officers. And our experience is that the asylum officers were actually much, much better than we thought they would be. And our ability to talk to them and say, listen, all you have to do, we would appreciate it if you could do this rather than that. If they were willing to do that, the interviews went much more smoothly. Everything Mm -hmm. went much better. And I don't know whether the outcomes were changed, but the sense of access to justice was certainly changed. And if we could take that and apply it to everything we do, surely there will be some things that are obviously adversarial in nature and that we're not going to be able to resolve by mediation or by, you know, discussion or collaboration. But I think that the lion's share of what we do could be just much more peaceful. That's great. That's great. I really salute you for that. My second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer? Maybe an artist? You know, I can always still be an artist. I think, don't tell my dad, but probably I'd be a doctor. I was asked my husband last night and my friend what kind of a doctor I would be. And I think an ER doctor, I think, would be what I would be if I were not well, a lawyer. Well, uh, being a pro bono lawyer is some ways like being an ER doctor. You have these emergencies. You have these clients or people with urgent needs. You're trying to address them in real time. So that's not a bad analogy. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. My third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? Well, now that my staff is up to nine and I am able to give some time to other things besides putting out fires, I'm getting about six hours sleep a night. But for the past several years, I'm getting about four, which is definitely not enough. Wow. I would be a zombie at four. So I'm glad to hear you're up to six, but maybe you can even get more in the new year. Maybe that's your resolution, Jackie. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good one. So my last question is, do you have any final words of wisdom, such as career advice or life advice for my listeners? My career advice is start off with an exit strategy. What is the thing that I want to learn? What is the thing that I want to bring with me? What is the benefit that I want to have to my organization? And so if you have an exit strategy where you say, my next thing is going to be that I'm going to go and be a pro bono counsel 
at a law firm, what you're going to be doing now is building up a warehouse of skills and strengths and all of the things that if you don't leave, make you more valuable where you are now. And if you do leave, make you more valuable where you go. And that is really applicable to your paying client practice as well. If you decide to develop an area of expertise in, I don't know, post-closing purchase price adjustment disputes, right? And you take that, you can go off to another firm that might have a lot of need for that and bring that. And if you have it at your current firm, you are also in a position in which you are able to provide excellent service on a particular type of transaction or deal or litigation where you are. So having an exit strategy helps you both when you leave and when you stay. Well, that's great advice. I think people should take it to heart. So speaking of exits, I guess we have concluded. But really, Jackie, thank you so much for your time and insight. And thank you for all the amazing pro bono work that you and your colleagues at Kirkland do. Thank you, David. This has been really a lot of fun. Thanks so much to Jackie for joining me. And thanks to her and her colleagues at Kirkland for all the great pro bono work they do. I hope that this episode will inspire my lawyer listeners to ramp up their commitment to pro bono work in the new year. Thanks to Nextfirm for sponsoring the Original Jurisdiction podcast. Nextfirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. To explore this opportunity, please contact Nextfirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harry, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction. And thanks to you, my listeners and readers. To connect with me, email me at davidlatt at substack.com or find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter at David Latt and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, but it's made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode should appear two weeks from now on or about Wednesday, December 27. Until then... May your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.